again, good morning, church. As you walked in, you probably started to see some of the promo uh, for a fall spiritual campaign that we're going to do together as a church called Not a Fan. I know some of you have done the small group or read the book, but what we're going to do as an entire church is we're going to go through that. So Sunday mornings, we're going to preach on it. Uh, we're going to have some Sunday school classes and some small groups going through the material. And so all together as a church, we're going to talk about this material and see what it means to really be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's going to be a chance for us to uh, just as a church body, just to come together and get some uh, traction and, and really see what God is doing here and what he wants from us. And so uh, we're going to have various small groups meeting at Sunday school times, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And I actually need a couple more small group leaders. And so if you're at all interested in uh, leading a small group, specifically, I need someone that's willing to do a Zoom group. Okay. I don't even know how to do a Zoom group. Okay. So if you do and you can do it online, there'll be some people that, that still are a little leery about meeting in person. Uh, and you're willing to do that. Uh, it'd be really easy uh, as far as facilitating that group. So please let me know after the service and I would love to, to get you connected in that. If you would open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, we're still going through this series about radical joy. So let me just start off this morning by asking you, uh, what brings you joy in this life? Now some of you can probably think of a vacation. Maybe the joy is going to a, a Disney World or, or sitting out on a beach somewhere and just relaxing and not having any responsibilities. For some of you, you get joy through work. You enjoy what you do in your work and, and enjoy the office. For others, maybe there's there's work at home and, and working around the house that brings you joy. For some, it's probably hobbies. You think of joy, you think I'd rather be golfing or, or fishing. I'd be out gardening. Maybe you enjoy baking apple pies. Let me tell you, if that's you, see me after the service because I enjoy eating apple pies. And I feel that we could be best friends, so, so see me afterwards. Some of you just enjoy spending time with your family, with your kids, with your grandkids. Maybe you enjoy as a hot cup of coffee on a cold morning or, or a cold iced tea on a hot afternoon or a thick, juicy steak anytime during the day because steak is always good to eat. Uh, maybe your joy is just simply solitude, spending some time alone. Well, let me ask you this. Does your relationship with God bring you joy? Does your relationship with God bring you joy? I know we're in church, and so everybody's like, well, the right answer is yes. <laughs> I don't want the right answer. I want the honest answer. Do you enjoy spending time with God in his presence? Do you look forward to, to coming into worship? Do you enjoy uh, just spending and opening the Bible and, and reading his word? Or, or taking time in prayer and just being with him. Now, for some of you, there's probably an emphatic yes. I enjoy that. I, I crave my alone time with God or time in worship with this church. Some of you, like, eh, sometimes, <laughs> depending on the service. Some of us are like, eh, not really. There may be some of us that actually say no. That, that when we come into the presence of God, we feel a greater sense of burden. A greater sense of frustration. There's guilt and shame you feel because you don't feel like you're living up to the perceived expectations that, that you think God has on you. You see, attending church, serving ministry, giving, devotions, there are all kinds of never-ending to-do lists when it comes to religion. 
And sometimes we get more frustrated trying to do the right thing and trying to be who we think God wants us to be instead of just simply enjoying God. And for some of us, we've been talking about joy stealers. For some of us, we see God as a joy stealer. That God wants more from us than, than what we can give. At least that's what we think. And I want to tell you that if you have that misconception, that that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Satan wants you to think that you can't be good enough. Satan wants you to think that, that God's standards are too high, that he's too demanding and unreasonable for you ever to live up to that standard. That's what, exactly what Satan wants because he wants you to wear yourself out trying to do religious things in order to please God. So let me dispel this, mo this notion right off the bat. God loves you for who you are. And right now, in this moment, this is true from this moment on, God cannot love you any more than he does in this moment. God cannot love you any less than what he does in this very moment. There's nothing that you can do, say, now or beyond, that will change the way God loves you. And I hope that refreshes your heart. I hope you find some freedom in that truth that God loves us. Now, we talk about righteousness, and that's what today's topic is, radical righteousness. And there is a standard of righteousness. That standard is God. He's holy. He alone is perfect. He is the standard of righteousness. And, and we understand, and hopefully I can take some guilt off your shoulders, you will never be righteous on your own. In fact, Scripture says, no one is righteous. No, not one. There's none of us that can do enough good deeds to somehow rise up to the holiness level of God Almighty. He is pure. He is holy. That is who he is. The Bible reminds us of that, that we fall short of that glory. The good news is, while we can never live up to it, that's why Jesus Christ came. That's the whole gospel message, right? That he came. Uh, he lived that holy life that we couldn't live, that he died on the cross and took our sins upon himself, and, and now we are free and forgiven, and that's why we're saved by grace. The problem is, is as Christians, we know that that's the gospel. We preach it, we teach it, we share it, but somehow that still hasn't invaded our hearts. Christians over and over again still try to live up a certain standard of righteousness and they equate righteousness for what we do for God and I'm here to tell you that righteousness is the relationship we have with God that's where righteousness comes from having a personal relationship with God here in chapter 3 of Philippians Paul warns the church to guard against false teachers see even back in in the first century Christians struggled with this idea of trying to be good enough. And particularly, one of the problems they were having is that Gentiles would come to know Christ and, and be uh, converted into him. And then there'd be some Jewish Christians that would come along and they'd try to teach the Gentiles that, no, 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 it's not enough to just simply know Jesus. You have to do more. And basically what they wanted to do was kind of convert to Judaism and have them be circumcised and follow some aspects of the Old Testament law. They said, if you do that, then you can be part of God's people. 
And that's the situation that Paul's trying to deal with here. And he even calls out some of these teachers that are spreading these lies there in the church of Philippi. Look at verse 1. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And there's that joy, that, that, that point of being joyful in God. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, this is some strong language used by the Apostle Paul here. When he refers to these false teachers, he, he basically just calls them dogs. And, and when he says dogs, he doesn't mean these cute little puppies. Uh, this word is, is translated to mean mutts or scoundrels. These are a pack of wild dogs that are flea infested and, and got mange and they're going through garbage and you see this kind of pack of dogs on the street, you avoid them at all costs. That's what Paul's saying about these false teachers that have come in. And apparently this isn't the first time because Paul even says, you know, I, I, it doesn't trouble me to write this to you again. Paul's had to address this issue multiple times within the church because there's always that tendency to go back to what we do for God and somehow earning our salvation. Of course, they are specific about circumcision being a requirement and understand that circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made to Abraham and then to Israel as a nation. That's what it's for, was that covenant God had with them. It's not something that's to be applied to all of us today. And even the point of circumcision, while it was to designate them as God's people, there came a point when the people of God, their hearts had turned against God, that they were being circumcised, but, but honestly, it, it had no spiritual impact on their life. It, it had nothing to do with the covenant they had with God. It's just something they did. Just like a lot of the, the laws and regulations of the temple were just something they did because it's part of the Jewish culture, which is kind of correlated with us today. Sometimes baptism can just be something we do something we're told to do we follow through with it but it makes no spiritual impact in our lives no significance and so we look at all these outward things and think that that for some reason they're going to be what we point to to save us but what really saves us of course is the grace of god and is his spirit at work in our lives this is paul he continues in verse three he says for it is we who are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Again, you want to know how someone's a Christian? How do we know someone's a Christian? Well, we know because of the way the Spirit leads out in their lives. As Paul saying that we who are true Christians are, are those who are submitted to the Holy Spirit that's at work in us. We don't put confidence in what we do, but we put confidence in the work of God in us and that's lived out through obedience and through a life of worship that's what romans chapter 12 verse 1 says when paul writes i urge you dear brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god this is your spiritual act of worship worship isn't something we do on sunday mornings it isn't confined by songs or worship uh, uh, in, a, in a time that Charles leads or prayer or, or even this service. Worship is going out in our lives and saying, God, I want your spirit to lead me in all things. 
every part of my life, my, uh, if I'm dating who I date, if I'm married, my marriage, in, in my work, in my finances, in my hobbies, in, in my entertainment, all these things, Father, I, I just want to make sure that your spirit is guiding me and leading me in these areas. So I want my life to be completely submitted to your will. That, that's what worship is. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. A spirit-filled person, first and foremost, loves God and seeks his glory in all things. And that's what a covenant relationship is that we enter into with Christ Jesus. It's not about the religious things that we do. Paul says that if we can be religious, that he'd be the poster child for righteousness. Look at verse four. He says, though I myself may have reasons for such confidence, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the, the Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul said, if you want to talk about righteousness being earned, look at the Old Testament. Guess what? I, I'm the poster child. I, I, I was born... His mother was Jewish, and he was circumcised on the eighth day, and he went through all the religious training. He even became a Pharisee. And talk about not just a Pharisee in name, but he was zealous for the Lord, so much so that he tried to persecute and destroy the church. He said, I did everything. People looked at me as one uh, example to follow. And Paul's not bragging here. He's just saying this, this is the path that I was on. And if righteousness could be earned, Paul said, I, I would have earned it but it can't be obtained through human effort. I think there's too many Christians who still just haven't grasped this truth. You can't earn righteousness. And because of that, you are frustrated in your faith. You're frustrated in your walk with the Lord. You can't seem to find peace and just accept the fact that God's grace covers all sin. I don't know why we struggle with that. Maybe we look at our past and say, well, there's a lot of sin to cover. Uh, and maybe we still feel guilt and shame by what we did. And maybe you think, well, I'm going to help God out by doing some good things. Uh, maybe it's just a, a matter of feeling in control. Maybe we don't like the fact that we're just simply recipients of salvation and we kind of want to earn our own way. No free lunches here. I'm going to do the right thing. Maybe it's just an attitude that, that we're just scared and we just want to make sure we don't trust the, the gospel enough that we just want to make sure and so so many christians that go around and we got this kind of a this this spiritual scorecard of all the things that we do we can mark off went to church today check was baptized check in a study a small group a, a bible study class check served in the church today check was a junior high sponsor, check, check. You get actually a gold star if you work with junior high kids, okay? That's extra bonus. You know, I tied today, check, or cash, or, or credit, we'll, we'll take whatever. But we sit there, we have this imaginary card, we check everything off, and I think the idea is, is that when we get before God, when it was time for judgment, that we hand him our scorecard, and we just sit back and we wait, we let him do the math. And hopefully, we've got enough checks and gold stars that he's going to lessen that. You realize that's nowhere in Scripture. That's just not something that, that God has ever put out for us. It's just something that we made up for ourselves. 
See, we can't earn our way into heaven. And that includes even the things that we do in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the most frightful scriptures, I think, of all of the New Testament is found in Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus talking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoer. That's powerful. If I saw someone driving out demons or performing miracles, I would just assume that they're more spiritual than I am because I've not done those things. Jesus said, there's going to be people that do great things in my name and it won't matter. And they won't be in my kingdom. And what was his point? He says, I never what? Knew you. Say knew you. You know somebody. We're not talking about know of somebody. We're talking about really know somebody. We're talking about this relationship is what God wants from us. Just before he says these words, Jesus is talking about a tree. He said a good tree or a healthy tree produces healthy fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. He's talking about the fruits of our lives. How do we know we're in Christ Jesus? By, by the fruit of our lives, the spiritual fruit, the characteristics of God that are being developed and that grow in our lives as we continue to grow in our relationship with him. The only way we can develop this fruit is to know Jesus, to allow him to invade our life, to, to put it before him and allow him to work. See, it's not just wrong theologically to think we can earn our way into heaven, but it's, it's just frustrating practically. Because the question is, how, how do we do enough? I mean, what's the standard of enough? To say, going to church is, is a way to go to heaven. So, so how often do we need to go to church? Do we go to church once a month, twice a month? Does that have to be four times a month? I know, and then how many times a week? When I was a kid, we went to church. We had Sunday school, we went to church, we had youth group at five o'clock, then we had another church service at uh, six o'clock. So we're in church four times that Sunday. And then of course I had Wednesday night Bible study or church there, and then any other youth group activity. We had VBS back in the day, it was two weeks long. I'll tell you, when I was a kid, I hated VBS. I'm not keen on it as an adult, but I hated it as a kid. Because we just got out of school and we'd already be in VBS two weeks. We were at church all the time. How much is enough? Reading the Bible, how much is enough? Do I need to be in a Bible study every day? Okay. Do I just have to read a couple verses? Do I need to read a whole chapter? Do I need to read a whole book? How long do I pray? 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes? I mean, you can go on and on of all the things that, that we think are religious and then ask, well, how much is enough? See, that's what enough does. It, it creates this, this stress on us. And, and I think for a lot of Christians, we're suffering what I've called just spiritual performance anxiety. Spiritual performance anxiety. You're tired of trying to perform for God. Then you can't live up any longer. And you have this unattainable standard that you're searching for so that you can at least feel confident about your salvation. I wonder here if some of you don't have SPA. So I'm going to give you a little quiz. And this is something you just kind of answer in your own part. But here's some characteristics of SPA. Uh, do you feel coming to worship 
on Sunday mornings or studying scripture or serving the church, do you see that as an obligation or an opportunity? Why are you here? Is it because it's just something you do? This is what we're supposed to do. Sunday morning, we always go to church. My family went to church, I went to church. This is what we do. That would be an obligation. Or did you come here expecting an opportunity? Opportunity for God to speak to your life in a new way. Opportunity for you to, to, to absolutely come in the presence of the most holy God and have your life transformed. Second question, when you leave worship, how do you feel when you walk out of here? Do you feel burdened or blessed? Do you walk out of here thinking, boy, I'm just not there yet. Oh, there's more things I need to do this week, more of my life I need to fix to get right with God. Do you feel a sense of pressure and stress? Or do you walk out of here feeling, oh, isn't God good? Just the fact that God loves you for who you are and won't love you anymore or less than he does right now, that should make you walk out of here feeling free. Praise God that I don't have to, to perform anymore. We should walk out of here feeling renewed because God's word brings life to his people. Third question, if you, how do you know, if someone were to ask you, how do you know that you've been saved? If your immediate response is to point to something that you've done, you say, well, I know I'm saved because this one time when I was at Falls Creek or at some camp, I made a commitment that night. Or I can point to the day that I was baptized. That's how I know I'm saved. If you point to something that you did, you probably got SPA. But if you point to something that God has done, I hope that every Christian doesn't point to a baptistry, but they point to a cross. How do I know I'm saved? Jesus died for me. That's how I know. He died for me, and I have faith in that. And I've surrendered to that. And that's all he asks of me, is to surrender and to follow him. It's about what he has done. And last question, if your faith makes you feel frustrated and yet SPA. But if your faith makes you feel fulfilled, then you're living the life God wants you. You have the relationship that he desires. Scripture's pretty plain that Satan is the one that steals, kills, and destroys. So if you feel burdened, if you feel pressured, if you feel overwhelmed, that's not coming from God because Jesus said, I have come that you may have what? Life. Not just have life, but have it abundantly or overflowing. God wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to be filled with joy and with peace. And when it comes to salvation, assurance that you are secure in him. God doesn't want you to worry. Satan wants you to worry. Satan wants you to doubt. He wants you to question. He wants you to work harder. That's not what God does. So we trust that Jesus came to break the chains of sin and death so that we may enjoy this life in preparation for enjoying the eternal life that is to come. And so this morning, there's one truth that I want you to get is simply this. Radical righteousness is a result of a radical relationship, not radical religion. If you, want, if you want to have radical righteousness, if you want to truly walk in confidence in the Lord and, and follow Him, it comes from having a radical, radical relationship with Him. I'm righteous because I'm with Christ. And His righteousness begins to bleed into my life. 
It's not because I'm radical in my religion, because I'm more devout than you, because I pray harder than you, because I do more things than you. See, that's religion's answer to all this. Look at any other religion. You ask them, how do you be righteous? How do you get to that next level? They'll say, well, you got to do more. You got to read more. You got to study more. You got to pray more. You got to fast more. You got to add more rules, more restrictions in your life and do more uh, than anyone else. Then you'll be a holy person. That's religion's answer to this question. But the truth of the matter is it cannot be earned through human effort. Nothing we do on our own will ever be good enough. Righteousness is simply a natural byproduct of an intimate relationship with God. That's what it is. When you have been in the presence of God consistently and open to it, inviting God into your life, He's going to change you. It's not even stuff you have to work on. It's that He's going to naturally, through His Spirit, cause you to will His goodness in your life. Righteousness is a, simply a result of the Spirit working in you, helping you move from a sinful nature into His divine or holy nature. So the key is just a simple pursuit of Christ. That's the key, is pursuing Christ. And this is the point Paul makes very emphatically. Look at there at verse 7. He said, whatever was to my prophet, in other words, all those religious things that I did, that I could brag about whatever was to my prophet, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own but that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I look back at my life, I look back at all these good things that I did and how everyone admired me for being uh, the perfect Jew or the perfect, uh, what we thought, the godly man. And he said, you know what? I realized all those things were a waste of my time because they were keeping me from really knowing God. They sent me down a path that led me away from where I wanted to go. Paul says, I was zealous in studying the law, keeping the law, enforcing the law. I did everything the world said and realized this whole time I was missing out on what God really wanted for me. And now I got it. I got it. It's about knowing Christ. Knowing Him. That's all that matters. And anything else, everything else is garbage compared to, to knowing Christ. It's about being personal and intimate with him. That word knowing is more than just knowing somebody. I can say I know who Patrick Mahomes is. I know who he is. I know what team he plays for, all those things. I don't know him. I can't call him up. and I couldn't tell you anything personal about him. I think a lot of Christians, we live our life knowing God, knowing Jesus, knowing some stats, knowing some verses. But do we know him? who he is, his heart for us? Because if we did, this idea of earning our salvation would never ever enter our minds. But that's the pursuit that we are called to have. Is to look at all these other things and realize they distract us and they hold us back from being who Christ really wants us to be. 
we need to know Jesus and open our lives to him. That means, like any other relationship, we have to invest time, attention, just to be with him, to hear him, to open our hearts to him and allow him to open himself to us. Paul gives four very specific ways in which we discover joy. The first one is knowing Christ. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Experiencing the Almighty. There's nothing greater than that. He says, the second thing is being found in Him. I consider them rubbish that I may get, gain Christ and be found in Him. There's joy in knowing that you belong to Christ. And knowing that, that when you're in His hand, nothing can snatch you out of His hand. There's joy and having your identity in him and the promises that, that we gain from that. Third thing he says, we share in his suffering. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Did you know there's joy in suffering? You know, in America, we're adverse to suffering. We hate it. I mean, any little inconvenience, you know, we're done. We came in here today and the air conditioner was out. People would be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Call me when the air conditioner comes back. And it's Oklahoma. It's hot. I get it. But, but we don't want to suffer at all. But Paul says, you know, when you, you're tied to Christ Jesus, even suffering for him is worthwhile. And I think that's true of a lot of relationships. That when there's someone you love, that even connected to them in the worst times is still better than not having that connection at all. And then last last thing he says is just the resurrection becoming like him in his death and so somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead the joy comes from the assurance that we have that this life is not the end of our lives that there's a greater promise and a greater kingdom waiting for us there's knowing there's belonging there's suffering this all describes a very personal relationship and that's exactly what Christ wants from us. He wants us to just to know him and to love him. You know, throughout the years, I've, I've done a lot of marital counseling. And each couple has different problems, but I, I can tell you that just in a generic sense, oftentimes a couple will come in and, and they'll talk about straining the relationship. And the wife will begin to talk and says, you know, um, he's just not around anymore. He's always at work. He's always out of the house. It's really frustrating. Now, I don't even think he loves me more because he never wants to be here. Inevitably, the husband will say, that's not true. That's not true. I work so hard because I do love you. I work hard because I, I try to provide this nice house and, and to give you clothes and to take care of the kids and provide for this family. This is all proof of my love. And the wife inevitably will look at her and says, I don't want those things. I want you. I think if we had couples counseling with God right now, God said, you know, I, I don't know they love me. And most of us would object, say, God, how can you say that? I went to church today. Right now, we got, we got a check mark. We'd start saying, God, but I did this, I did that, I did that. And I bet God would look at us and what he, his message is for you this morning is this. That's not what I want. I want you. relationship. That's what God speaks to each and every one of us here this morning. Scripture, Jesus, I think it was Matthew chapter 11, 
Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. This morning, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what burdens and stresses are on you. But I can tell you this, if, if your faith, if church, if God is a stress to you, Jesus is saying, come to me, because you haven't come to him. Jesus said this to the Jews who were probably overwhelmed with over 623 different laws and traditions they had to keep. Jesus said, forget those, just come to me. Come to me. So Jesus says, you'll find rest here. You'll find peace in the presence of God. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's something else. Job-related, stress-related, family-related, I, I don't know, but I can tell you this. It is in the presence of God that we find freedom. It's in our relationship with Jesus Christ that we find joy and that we are filled, once again, with the life that he created us to live. So this morning, if you have any burdens that you need to lay down, lay them at the feet of Christ. Just reach out to him because he will fill you with his love. And you'll experience the power that surpasses all understanding. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you give us. We thank you for the rest that you promise us. Lord, there's so many things in this world that that just seem to drain life out of us. But Father, you give us life and you give it abundantly. So I pray right now, Father, that, that if there's any baggage that people have brought into your presence here today, Father, you help unburden us. Help us to let go of these, these bags and throw off these chains and just find peace and love and joy and assurance being found in you. Lord, you are a great God. You love us. Let us just bask in that love. Enjoy you from here all through eternity. Thank you for your goodness, Father. Thank you for your love and your son's holy name. Amen. You know, I made the statement that God couldn't love you any more or any less than he does now. And that's kind of a hard statement to hear because, frankly, that's unconditional love, and most of us don't have that. In fact, you could come up to me after service today and say something that would make me love you more. You could say something that would make me love you less because I'm not God. I'm conditional. But God is unconditional. And how do we know that for a fact? We know that because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus has already died. He has already given us sacrifice for our sins. So we move into this time of communion. I want you to celebrate the love. That's why we do this each week is to remember. Remember. God's love's not conditional. That he loves you for who you are. Some of you already have the emblems with you. Uh, others will come forward and, and to take those. But as you do, just meditate and thank God for his love, his unconditional love for us.
Good girl. 
so glad you're here today you know, we've been gone for a couple weeks it's good to be back here with our church family and I tell you I love Sundays and gathering together uh, worshiping God but any Sunday where there's a baptism it's just a great Sunday and so let's just do one every week okay I you know uh, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ uh, that's what we're about the baptism is what we're about not just the baptism but discipleship after that but but we're here to see lives transformed and so this morning, if, if you've not made that kind of decision, you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about a relationship, a true relationship with Jesus Christ, see me afterwards. And I would love to, to just talk with you and see what, what God has planned for your life. But for the rest of us, we know people, family, friends, neighbors who, who don't know Christ yet. We need to be praying for them and inviting them next week that, that they may hear how much God loves them. So do that this week. Find somebody that you can invite and bring back with you next week. But glad you're here, but just have a wonderful and a safe week. Thank you. <laughs>